Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management, or sponsors. Now, here's your host, Sue Henry. On today's program, we'll hear from travel author and television personality Rick Steves with advice on going abroad without fear. We'll talk to a psychologist and get his ideas on raising resilient and curious children. And we'll meet an author with a background in psychotherapy and family law who gives us pointers on dealing with the five types of difficult people. Guidebook author, travel and TV host Rick Steves is inviting Americans to forget their troubles and political perceptions as they get out and enjoy international travel without trepidation. The PBS host is the author of Travel as a Political Act, which encourages the tourist to learn from another's perspective while not worrying too much about how others may perceive him or her. Steve started his own travel business in 1976, shortly after his dad introduced him to the concept of going abroad. I had no interest in traveling as a kid until my dad decided to import piano from Germany, and he came home one day and he said, son, we're going to Germany to see the piano factories. And I thought, that's a stupid idea. <laughs> but I got over there and I realized it's a fascinating world. And uh, I, I, I you know, went a couple of times to my parents as a kid, and I vowed to go back every year after that on my own, and I've done that. And uh, I've uh, spent four months a year in Europe uh, since, uh, well, for since the 70s. And uh, now I've, I'm really enjoying writing guidebooks and making TV shows and encouraging Americans to basically get beyond Orlando. Your television show is so visually stunning. Oh, oh my goodness, oh. Rick. It is, I, I bet it's better in person, but it looks great on TV. <laughs> well, I've got a great crew, and it's um, a beautiful sort of uh, setting. I mean, Europe is my, my beat, and uh, for me, Europe is the waiting pool for world exploration. And I really like to go over there and make the mistakes, take careful notes. When I get ripped off, I celebrate. They don't know who they just ripped off. I'm going to come home and teach my fellow Americans at SCAM so that when they go over there to Europe, they can travel smarter and enjoy maximum travel thrills for every mile, minute, and dollar in their vacation. And I've been doing that, uh, you know, for a long, long time. Now I've got, uh, you know, a staff of uh, about 150 people here in Seattle helping me produce and amplify my teaching. And I've got technology beyond my wildest dreams to to help me share the lessons I've learned from my travels. And um, I've realized uh, lately that um, it's really, I think, very valuable for Americans to get out of their comfort zone and travel in places where they, they're able to gain an empathy for the other 96% of humanity and come home with what I think is the most beautiful souvenir, and that's a broader perspective. You uh, say fear is for people who don't get out much, and I agree that some people are so intimidated by 
all kinds of things regarding travel. But as you just mentioned, Rick, now in this uh, age that we live in, there's more technology available. If if something goes wrong, my goodness, you can certainly get on your your phone and try to figure it out or Google <laughs> it. How has that how has that made people less timid about getting out there? Oh, I think uh, you know I've been teaching this for for decades, and uh, the language barrier is much easier now. Uh, anybody who's educated or young or in tourism is very likely to speak English. I speak only English. It's nothing to brag about it, but it's the language that works. Um, of course, we've got instant communication, almost free anywhere now, um, and uh, that was a huge challenge when I started traveling, was just communicating with your loved ones back home. Uh, transportation is so much easier and safer now. I mean, in the old days, it took a train ride, a boat ride, sniffed by dogs, another train ride to get from London to Paris. And now there's uh, two and a half hours by train, 17 minutes on the English Channel. Uh, I mean, it's it's just a delight. So, um, I, and you know, a lot of people are are wondering about safety and so on. It's in in any measure, it's safer today than it was 20 or 30 years ago to travel, you know, outside of our country. But uh, one thing we have different now is uh, 24/7 commercial news media that tends to make us frightened. So as you mentioned, fear is for people who don't get out very much, and I'm afraid the most frightened people in our society are the ones buried deep in the middle of it with no passports. I know that uh, the flip side of fear is understanding, and we gain understanding through travel. And uh, considering the complicated and important challenges facing our nation today, it's more important than ever that we get out and get to know the rest of the world. And you have in your book that the statistics about uh, terrorism and, you know, this this kind of probability, because, you know, when we see something happening overseas, Rick, uh, in, in a place like Paris, um, we, we think to ourselves... Wow, that that scratched that one off. But if we thought yeah. like that, I mean, we'd never set foot in New York City again. And I go <laughs> there all the time, and I don't really think too much about it. So I guess we just have to uh, think more broadly about this, right? Well, we need to think a little more cerebrally and less emotionally about it. I mean, we have to also remember news is, is these days, news is entertainment masquerading as news. News has to make money. In the old days, news didn't need to make money. It was The networks would contribute the news hour to our democracy without having to make a profit. Well, those days are gone now, and everything's corporate, and everything's got a legal obligation to profit maximize for its stockholders in the short term. So you can't give the news to our country anymore, and you've you got to amp it up and sex it up and bloody it up and crisis it up, and so you get more eyeballs and you can charge more for your ads. And, you know, entertainment's kind of fun, but it shouldn't make us a frightened nation. And uh, I just... Just I just love the the thought of getting out there and getting out of um, you know be, you know walloping your ethnocentricity. I, I just love to hang out with smart people who do things differently than me. And when I come home, I don't need to do it their way, but at least I know that that reasonable people can differ on this kind of stuff. And and for me, I've been you know I've written fifty guidebooks all over Europe. We take. 20,000 people on a on a thousand uh, tours through my company in Europe, and once you get over there, you realize it's safe. There's, I mean, it's it's just a shame that that people make a small terrorist bomb a big terrorist bomb by overreacting to it. You really got to keep it in perspective. Um, you know, bad things happen. A thousand people are killed in Nashville every year. I understand, but we still go to Nashville. Um, and uh, if something terrible happens in Europe, uh, it's a free society. There's 400 million people there. Uh, you know, you, you you take the risk. You go have a good time, and you realize. You know, when when somebody tells me you have a safe trip, I'm more inclined to say, well, you have a safe stay at home because where I'm going is statistically, and I know statistics are optional these days, but where I'm going is safer than where you're staying. I'm I'm heading off to Europe every year for four months, and. Uh, I, I just love it over there. Let's talk about the uh, impression that people in, in some foreign lands have of 
of Americans these days. So what's what's true and what's false? I mean, how are people perceiving us? Oh, you know, if if Europeans voted uh, uh, for our president, we'd always have a democratic president. I mean, Europe's, Europeans are just more liberal and more concerned with concerned with how the government can can contribute to the fabric of their democracies and so on. And a lot of Americans just really believe in this um, small government and, and and that sort of ideal. And you know, it's not a simple answer; it's no right or wrong. But Europeans um, kind of roll their eyes at at our president right now. But I'll tell you, there's no downside to traveling now because of what's going on in our country politically. The ideals of America, you know, pluralism, uh, uh, democracy, uh, hard work, you know, capitalism, these, uh, these uh, uh, kind of I- ideals of what America's all about, they're, they're shining examples on, on, the, on the hill for, for any, any uh, Western-looking democratic society, certainly in Europe. Um, and it's just fun for us to get over there. And I think the great thing about travel is, and I talk about that in my book, Travel as a Political Act, when we travel, we humanize the world. We gain an empathy for people south of our border or far away. It makes it tougher for them, for their government, to demonize us with their propaganda when they know who we are. And it also, when we go home, it makes it tougher for our government to demonize or dehumanize them with our propaganda. And um, it's just, you know, what, what really distinguishes a good trip is how many people you meet. If I'm working on a TV script or leading a tour or writing a guidebook, the, the mark of what kind of a job I'm doing, I think, is how can I connect my travelers with real people in another country? Because that's really what, what distinguishes and, and makes sure it carbonates the whole experience. Very good. Now, let's talk about uh, if, if we do want to travel in the upcoming months, where our money goes really, really far, do you see? Because a lot of the people who live here, Rick, are a little bit on the tight side. So could you talk about sure. maybe some places where you could get a really great bang for your buck right about now? Well, you know, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time thinking, where's my dollar going to go the farthest? I spend a lot of time thinking about where are my travel dreams taking me and how can I travel smartly in that place? If you've always wanted to visit relatives in Norway and somebody still tells you that Portugal is a lot cheaper, well, of course Portugal is cheaper, but you want to go to Norway to see your relatives. Um, I would say if you're thinking about how can you stretch your dollar, you're going to pay $10 to go into that museum one way or another. If you know a little bit about what you're going to see, you'll enjoy it twice as much. Uh, you know, I've spent my lifetime teaching people how to stretch their dollars overseas, and you can find alternatives to hotels and restaurants and eat and sleep perfectly well in the most expensive countries anywhere, and you can travel cheaper in those countries than you could in a, quote, cheap country. Having said that, you know, there's to the south and to the east, things are cheaper. If you go to Greece or you go to Portugal or you go to Spain, it's going to be a lot cheaper than uh, Britain or Scandinavia. Uh, but, you know, there's so many things now that enable us to travel really efficiently. There's discount airlines. Uh, in the old days, nobody would fly point to point in Europe. And now, you know, a, a flight is cheaper than a, in a bus or a train ride uh, if you know how to get a good flight. Uh, Airbnb makes uh, sleeping in bed and breakfasts. Uh, uh, really competitive compared to hotels, and uh, I just and there's efficiencies like we don't need to change money when we cross borders these days because nearly everybody has the same euro coins jangling in their pockets. So there's a lot of efficiencies. Um, I like to travel. I like to fly open jaws. I think it's been ten years since I flew in and out of the same city. Uh, you know, fly into one city and out of another city. Then you don't have to spend the time and the money to return to your starting point. You know, you have to decide: are you going to take a train? Are you going to drive? And those are important issues. If there's a group of you, it's much cheaper by car. If you're one or two, it's probably cheaper by train. If you're going from big city to big city to big city, a car is a worthless headache. You don't want a car. You want to take the train. If you're tooling around the countryside, 
that's where you want a car because public transportation would be more frustrating. If you are one of these people that has to pack heavy, I'm always preaching packing light. If you're not going to pack light, well, you should rent a car. You know, you could even rent a trailer. Uh, but if you're going to pack uh, uh, light, then uh, the train makes a lot of sense. So there's all these variables, and those are things that I, I talk about in, in my guidebooks, and, and those are the lessons you learn from your experience. And, and what I love to do is spend, I spend 120 days a year in Europe. I've done that for 30 years, and I'm just taking notes, making mistakes, hitting and missing, designing all the hits, bringing them home so people can have a better batting average in their travels. And you certainly go to some places, Rick, that uh, some people may say, I don't think I should go there. But uh, what are some countries that you've been to that people think are inherently very, very dangerous and you found them to be uh, quite the pleasure? Well, Sue, first of all, I want to say I would never advocate going to a dangerous place. Um, I've wanted to go with my, I've scouted a TV show for Egypt. I've wanted to go there for several years now, but I don't think it's uh, comfortable for American travelers uh, in Egypt right now as, as much as I'd like it to be, so I'm going to wait on that. But I've been in Iran, I've been in Palestine, I've been in Turkey and Morocco and Russia, and these are, and Cuba, uh, these are exciting destinations. Um, and uh, they're totally open for travel. And the Lonely Planet guidebooks to the, I don't write to these guidebooks to these countries, but I use Lonely Planet. And uh, those guidebooks sell quite well. Uh, and Americans think you can't go to Iran or you can't go to Cuba. Well, Americans have that problem, but everybody else goes there and, and loves it. Cuba is the number one Caribbean destination for Germans and Canadians. Uh, once you get there, then you realize, oh, my goodness, uh, here's an alternative viewpoint. And I just love to get both narratives. Uh, we did a TV show on the Holy Land, and I'm adamant about anybody who goes to the Holy Land should spend time in Israel and then in Palestine, in the West Bank. And you get to hear, um, you know, perspectives from both sides of that wall. Uh, is it dangerous? No. Is it poor and hard scrabble and lots of broken things and a little bit of chaos in the streets in Palestine? Yes. It's like going from San Diego to Tijuana. It's, uh, you know, people make ten times as much money on one side of the wall between America and Mexico, and they make ten times as much money on one side of the wall between Israel and Palestine. So you're going to find nicer roads and, and people that spend more money um, on, on, you know, soap uh, on one side of the wall, but you've got beautiful, hardworking people on the other side of the wall that you can meet also. You also uh, take on something that I, I guess most uh, travel aficionados uh, don't, and that's drug policy, which I think is very interesting. And I want you to talk a, a little bit of, about that as well. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm an advocate of uh, stop taking the crime out of the drug policy equation. I was one of the sponsors and spokespeople and, and uh, um, you know, uh, on the team in Washington State when six years ago we legalized tax and regulated marijuana. Uh, Washington State and Colorado were the first states to do that. Every two years I go on the road and spend a lot of money and spend a lot of my time in different states trying to help those states understand the tragedy of our uh, war on marijuana and the wisdom of, of, uh, of uh, legalizing, taxing, and regulating it. I'm certainly not pro-marijuana. I'm just pro-smart uh, drug policy and, and pro-civil liberties and kind of into pragmatic harm reductions rather than moralizing and incarceration. I, my, my perspective is shaped by my time in Europe, where a joint's about as exciting as a can of beer. And my friends in Europe have uh, explained to me there's, not, there's just no correlation between how strict the laws are and how much consumption you have. I mean, there's not a, a reservoir of decent people that would love to ruin their lives smoking pot if only it was legal. And that was my hunch. And in, in Washington State, six years ago, we regulate, we, uh, we legalized marijuana. And 
when we did, the marijuana uh, industry in our state was huge. It was rivaling apples, and that's a, a big deal in Washington state. And our hunch was when we legalized, we would not see an increase in use of marijuana. We would just turn it into a highly regulated and highly taxed industry, taking all that money that was empowering gangs and organized crime away from that black market and turning it into a good market. And that's exactly what we've done. Four years later, the, the track record is in. Washington has legalized marijuana. We have um, taken the black market uh, down. Um, we have seen statistically that use has not gone up among adults. Use has not gone up among teens. DUIs have not gone up. Crime has not gone up. What has gone up is tax revenue. We've taken that uh, black market industry, turned it into a legal one, and this year my governor arrested, ten, last year my government arrested uh, 10,000 fewer people and we got $300 million in tax revenue in Washington state alone, not because more people are smoking pot, but because that money is no longer going into the black market. That's Rick Steves, author of Travel as a Political Act. You can catch his show, Rick Steves Europe, on PBS. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. If children act up or act out when faced with the prospect of eating foods they don't like, going to bed when they're told, or balking at homework, what is a parent to do? Dr. Daniel Siegel has some suggestions, and they involve raising adaptable and open-minded youngsters. He recently spoke to us about his new book, The Yes Brain, How to Cultivate Courage, Curiosity, and Resilience in Your Child. Well, what we found was parents were wondering in this very chaotic world we have and the challenges we have with parenting, what are the ways we can actually bring strength to the brain of our children? And so the yes brain is basically a way where you create this inner guide, a compass really, which allows your child to have balance in their lives, allows them to have resilience, and allows them to face challenges where instead of collapsing, they actually have the courage to go forward and try things out in new ways if they're not working well. So in many ways, the yes brain is a way parents can build the brain of their child so that when they leave home, they're ready to face the world that's out there. What are some of the problems you see now with uh, today's children? And I guess in tandem with this, it looks like parents have to also think differently as well. And sometimes that's, that's a tough one for them, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, these days, I think there's so much that's challenging about parenting. Parenting is one of the hardest jobs. And so if you're feeling stressed as a parent, you're not alone. These days, with so many distractions that kids have facing, for example, with social media when they get older, or even with a lot of the things that happen on screen time, people are used to very quick changes in their attention. So for a parent with a child who's having a hard time just focusing, this can be really, really difficult because to balance your emotions, to learn to connect to other people, to find a way to deal with challenges requires focusing attention. And when you learn as a parent these basic strategies of teaching a child how to actually cultivate this yes brain approach, what happens, this is based on science, what happens is you actually build the part of the brain that all this distraction doesn't build, but you can do that as a parent. And uh, you have the the faces of an integrated brain as your model. They are flexible, adaptive, coherent, energized, and stable. Let's talk a little bit 
about uh, flexibility with the children, doctor, because sometimes we see kids and their favorite word really is no. And um, <laughs> sometimes parents just capitulate immediately. How do we how do we develop a, a flexibility or an openness with with our kids? Well, exactly. Let's say your child says to you, um, listen, mom, I really want to have ice cream before dinner. I'm going to have ice cream. I got to have ice cream and I'm not going to eat dinner without ice cream. Now, you have a couple of ways you can go. One approach, which is what often we do, is to say, that is ridiculous. You're not having ice cream before dinner. No way. We don't do that in this home. Now, that's understandable because that's the rule and you want to eat a meal before you have a dessert. So that's really a common response. But what that does is it doesn't give your child the opportunity to learn a skill. So here's a yes-brain approach versus that view, which is we would call a no-brain because it creates resistance in your child. Here's an alternative way to do it. You say, gosh, I would like to have dinner too after we have ice cream. Wouldn't it be great just to eat ice cream first? That would be so much fun. And your child is looking at you like, what? And then you go, you know, that's also a feeling I have of wanting to have it first. So you're identifying their mind, their feeling before you identify the structure you're going to give them. Then after you connect like that, you then say, you know something? We're going to have dinner first because you need to eat nutritious things before you have your dessert. And then let's think, do you want to have vanilla ice cream, strawberry chocolate after we have dinner? So what happens in that approach, it sounds so simple, but you've identified the mind of your child, their feelings, what they're hoping for. And instead of shaming them for it, which is what a no-brain approach can often do, you're actually saying, I see why you feel that way. Those feelings are okay, but we're not going to carry out that behavior. So you're giving them structure, and then they feel safe, and they learn, okay, I can have a feeling, and even if it doesn't go my way, I can have my dinner, and then I'll have dessert. All right, now talk about uh, the adaptive part of this. Yeah, well, you know, you, you're hitting on the main thing. So flexible would be your child says, all right, I can't have the dessert, I'll go along with it. Adaptive is where they're saying in different situations that may be ways in which they have to say, okay, I was going to go to my friend's house, but my friend has a cold, so I can't go there, and now I have to go to Aunt Sally's with my mom and my sister. So many children lock on to the first idea, I was going to be with my friend, and they can't adapt to the new things that are, they're required to do. So adaptation comes from literally in the brain, you have this capacity to say, here's what I initially wanted, I'm switching gears. And that gear switching mechanism in the brain is something a yes brain approach actually is built by when you do these strategies that we, we offer in the book. And what it does basically in terms of adaptation is it actually gives your child a sense of strength, ironically, because initially when kids dig their heels in right. and they don't adapt, mm -hmm. they think they're being strong, but you're actually teaching them a deeper kind of strength and wisdom of how to adapt to what's going on. All right. Now let's talk about coherent with our children. Yeah, you know, that term is a wonderful term, which basically means how you stay fully functional in different situations. So it's really a great term for resilience. And that means like when you get off balance, when you're in, stuck in rigidity, like I need to have this, or you're chaotic, like you're exploding with emotions like many of our kids can do. This is your ability to come back to that balanced place. So coherence is holding well together over time. It's being resilient. And when you teach these yes brain strategies, what you're doing is basically building the part of your, your child's brain 
that allows them to shift gears, that's adapt, to be flexible in what they do, but then to have this capacity to have essentially an inner compass. So imagine when your child's going to be 18 and getting ready to leave the house. When you've given them these yes brain strategies, you've built this coherence in their brain so that resilience unfolds and when they face challenges, and sometimes they're really difficult, they can come back to balance. And that's basically what the coherence term means in the FACES acronym. All right. And the uh, energize term, sometimes we're just so beaten down and exhausted as as parents. Uh, how do we how do we continue when we feel like we're fighting a losing battle and and uh, we have a, a strong opponent like a child who is, you know, absolutely resistant to our ideas? You know, Sue, that is such a great question. And I think you're showing that the FACES experience of becoming whole and integrated is something we as parents need as much as our kids, for sure. So this yes brain approach is just as much for us. And so here's the idea. Every moment there's something difficult going on. It's very understandable as parents. We say, oh, my God, this is so hard. It's too much for me. I'm overwhelmed. It's a burden. Oh, this is so difficult. Think about this. Even though the days are long, the years are short. Now, I have kids out in their 20s now, so they're out of the house. And when I think back to the years when they were at home, I think about them with a lot of fondness. Now, it's hard in the heat of battle, you know, when you're doing all the different things that parenting demands you do. It's hard to keep that in mind, but this is the way you can think about being energized. If you can realize that the moments that are most difficult are actually the opportunities for not only your child to have some deep learning, but you too to learn some new things, then you actually can reframe how you perceive these difficulties. And there's a lot of energy that's released from that. That's where the word energized comes from. You can really use a very focused strategy, this yes brain strategy, to create this yes brain in yourself, which, by the way, comes from just the idea that you can have a positive, robust attitude toward life rather than a down, shut down way that you live in a no brain state. And uh, finally, the, excuse me, the stability one. Yeah, you know, stability doesn't mean you're rigid and just completely predictable. Stability means there's a core inside of you as a parent, and you can teach this to your child, where even if things get off, you know that there's an inner compass that guides them. And let's say they're young children, let's say a toddler or a preschooler, you can actually show them in your own ways of interacting with them that they have something inside of them, no matter what's going on with the kids at school or bedtime stuff, that there's an inner child there in your child that can be stable. Now, think about it this way. If that toddler and preschooler is now an elementary school kid and now going on to middle school and high school, you have taken the time to build these yes-brain circuits, which are these sources of an inner compass that gives them stability. It's like a a balancing capacity. And that's why it's a gift that keeps on giving. And that stability is really part of the whole way that the brain, if you looked at the brain science of this, it's really built these circuits that allow a child to approach all sorts of difficulties with clarity and with what's called equanimity, a kind of way of bringing themselves back to balance. Doctor, we have a very bad opioid crisis where we live 
and the median age for the people getting involved is, is younger and younger. How can parents work with their children during brain training to encourage them not to try harmful substances? You know, that's such an important issue, and I, and I, I really hear the challenge for any parent who's living in a community like that. And so just a couple of things to say about opioids in particular. You know, these substances lock onto a part of the brain called the reward system, which involves a, a chemical called dopamine. And what that means is that when you take an opioid, it leads to your reward system saying, that was something I should be doing. I need to be doing more of it. Then once the opioid effect wears off, it crashes down. So in the brain, the reward system says, oh my God, something's missing, something's missing, I better do it again. And there's this incredible drive to take the opioids. This is, this is the really risky thing. So ways that you can build these things we're talking about really in the Yes Brain strategy of saying, can my child have an inner compass that guides them? Can I have a relationship with my child that is itself rewarding? Can I really build these connections? So that there's one study, for example, where rats were given the opportunity to either take water or take a dopamine-releasing substance, cocaine in this case, and they kept on taking the cocaine, but only when they were living in isolation. When they were in a social group and there were things to play with and other rats, they didn't do that. They didn't die from just keep on using this again. So we need to keep relationships alive. I think every intervention for drug abuse shows that it's our connections with people around us who can support us in, in recovering if we have become addicted or even in avoiding addiction. So communities, I think, need to get together and really deal directly as a collective with what the opioid crisis is really bringing as a challenge to parenting. And as you're saying, Sue, you know, it's so important to not have a young brain exposed to these substances because the brain actually resets itself to want, want that substance, to need that substance, to have this reward circuit focused on that substance. So the longer you can keep a child away from being exposed to it, the better the brain will be. Uh, and of course, if we can stay away from it forever, that's even better. Do you have any opinion about uh, marijuana, recreationally and medically? You know, it's so interesting. Marijuana has uh, a lot of different research to show that there are some significant negative effects on the brain. Uh, and in some ways, those parallel the negative effects of alcohol. So in a community where people have emotions about alcohol that are positive, but emotions about marijuana that are negative, when you look at the research, you really have to ask yourself, you know, well, they're both really not so good for the brain in the, when they're used uh, uh, very in a way that's damaging, both can lead to serious injury to the connections in the brain, the neural connections. So I, I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned that, uh, you know, people will use marijuana and use alcohol, by the way, in ways that are um, really troublesome. Now, the difference that people do point out is that while alcohol activates the dopamine system and you can become addicted to it, just like you can with opioids or cocaine, um, marijuana doesn't activate the reward system like that. And so while it can lead to difficulty with focusing attention and motivation and become a habit, 
it isn't addictive like alcohol or the opioids. So this is where people, when they say, well, look, if you have alcohol that's legal and that's addictive and you have marijuana that's not addictive, let's look at this as a you know, a playing field. And I think that's a reasonable discussion. Both are very concerning substances. Absolutely. All right. Before we let you go, because this is in your wheelhouse, can you say a little bit about mindfulness and young children as well as their parents? Because in this age of connectivity, doctor, it's so hard to get away from all this stuff. So can you give us a simple mindfulness tip that we can apply uh, today in our own lives? Absolutely. Well, the, the studies even like of, of dealing with drug addiction show that mindfulness is a very helpful intervention. What mindfulness is, is basically being aware of what's happening as it's happening. And here's a simple tip you can do. It's incredibly simple. It's rarely done. And the research that we've done at, at our institution and other places as well shows that it's really, really helpful for how you balance your emotions, your thinking, your attention, and even your relationships. So here's how it goes. If you take, let's say, even 30 seconds a day to simply sit in a chair and invite yourself to just take a moment and sense your breath and just feel the breath. You can do it right now. Just feel the breath as it comes in, let's say, at your nostrils. Feel the in-breath as the in-breath is there. Sense the out-breath as the out-breath is there. In-breath and out-breath. Now, If you just do this, even 30 seconds, I'm talking about half a minute, you start there, you'll find you may want to do it for a minute. Now, what we've been able to show in many research centers is that if you just took the time to sense the breath in the brain, you actually start, it's called integration, integrating, connecting the different parts, and it leads to calmness, it leads to clarity, it leads to a sense of letting the chatter of the mind that often distracts us and gets people to use drugs often, it lets that calm down. And if you just did this alone, as a tip, Sue, you're asking about, if you just did this alone, you'd be amazed how if you do it as a parent and then you can teach this to your child, things start to change. And I know it sounds simple and you're probably thinking I'm making this up, but if there wasn't a ton of research to back it up, I wouldn't be so you know, clear about it, but it's really, really clear focusing attention on the sensation of something, in this case we're doing the breath, is a starting place for developing more of what's called mindful awareness, and that is the gateway to strength. It parallels the yes brain approach to basically creating this vitality inside, this flexibility, the adaptability, the coherence, and the energy, and the stability we talked about. This is one tip of many, but it's really good to start with this. Doctor, if I use this on my talk radio callers, you do realize you're going to wreck my show, right? Because then they'll lose, <laughs> they'll lose all their head of steam. Oh, my gosh. Well, the good news is you can have other heads of steam you can work on, Sue. Dr. Daniel Siegel is the author of The Yes Brain, How to Cultivate Courage, Curiosity, and Resilience in Your Child. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. Psychotherapist and co-founder of the High Conflict Institute, Bill Eddy, has met a few difficult people during his career, and it's his premise that there are five types that can be identified. He talked to us about his new work, 
five types of people who can ruin your life, identifying and dealing with narcissists, sociopaths, and other high-conflict personalities. He told us it's not necessary to avoid them, but rather to understand them. Well, I think in this book, I really try to explain how you can manage the relationship with high-conflict people. I have a method I call the CARS method, where it gives you kind of four steps to try to manage. It doesn't take much time, and so you don't have to be afraid to go out because you know, oops, if I'm dealing with a high-conflict person, these four things are what I should do. So that's connect with them in some kind of a pleasant way, even if you feel like strangling them. Just say, hi, how's your day going? Or, you know, uh, good job last week. Or, you know, I I hear your frustration. Tell me more. I want to understand. And you could just spend a minute like that. And then you can focus on analyzing. So this is the CARS method. Connect and analyze. Analyze what your choices are. You can say, wow, that sounds frustrating. Well, you know, you got a couple options here. You could do this or you could do that. But it's up to you. Good luck with that. And then the R's respond to any misinformation. So they often distort things, exaggerate things, uh, or minimize important things. And maybe they say, well, you were making too much noise yesterday. And rather than saying, no, I wasn't, you make too much noise, is to say, oh, you might not have realized I was out of town yesterday, so that wouldn't have been me. And then S is for setting limits is to know you can set limits with high-conflict people or anybody. You can say, you know, um, have a good day, but I've got to go now. (laughs) You've always got something else that you need to do. Uh, And so that's, that's an example. I can give a quick example if you want. That would be great, Bill. Go ahead. Yeah, so, so dealing as a lawyer with high-conflict divorces, I had a case I was representing the wife who had been abused by the husband. It's a domestic violence case. And I represented her. The husband didn't have a lawyer, and so he could talk to me, and we had to negotiate the case. And he'd call up, and he'd say, well, you tell that so-and-so. And he would call her a bunch of names. And I'd say, wait a minute, buddy. If we're going to talk, you can't call her names like that. I'm not accepting that. And he says, I'll call her whatever I want to. And I'll say, well, that's up to you. But if you do, I'm going to hang up. So it's your choice. And so he's, well, I'm going to say whatever I want. And he says what he wants. And I say, you made your choice. I'm hanging up now. Then the next day he calls back and he says, you tell that so-and-so. And I'll say, hang on. Remember, you have a choice. Use those words. I'm going to hang up. And so he said, no, 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 I I, I won't say things that way. I'll I'll try not to say things that way. And I'll say, okay, good choice. So that's setting limits. It's connect with them, help them analyze their choices, respond to misinformation, and then set limits basically by saying what you will do and you won't do because you can't control what they do. Is that treating them like children, though, Bill? Um, Yeah. 
but it works <laughs> because it works with children. And in many ways, high-conflict people are emotionally kind of like children. But you do it respectfully, so don't, don't insult them and say, well, you're a child, so I'm going to treat you like a child. But that helps. If you're, if you're used to parenting a five-year-old, I used to be a kindergarten teacher 30 years ago, and a lot of what I use, I learned teaching kindergarten. Isn't that amazing that it's still applicable in, uh, in these realms that we're in, like business settings and so on and so forth, that uh, there's a consistent pattern to people? Absolutely. And it makes it easier in a way once you know what to look for. And that's a lot of why I wrote the book. So people know what the patterns are to look for and then that you can deal with them. Uh, people have a lot more confidence after learning this, these types of approaches after reading the book. People tell me they wish they had it 10 years ago because of someone they had to deal with. So you don't have to stay indoors. You can actually go out and deal with people with more confidence. Because I think, like I said in the beginning of the conversation, Bill, a lot of times our method of coping with certain people is really avoidance. And from what I heard you say so far, that may not be the best way to approach it because there are things you can do and say in an interaction that um, you, you let the person know uh, a little bit about what's happening. So they may actually start to have uh, greater self-actualization about what's up. Yeah, what you can do, but don't expect them to have uh, deep insights into themselves. That's not going to happen. But you can talk about, here's your choices. You can talk in a friendly tone. That's going to keep you from being a target of blame. A lot of people resent that. They say, why should I have to be nice if they're being rude? And I'll say, it's your choice. But if you're rude back, it may go on for a few years. And if you're nice, it may be over in a few minutes. So, you know, it's a choice. But they, yes, you can. And sometimes people go, oh, okay, I'll back off. But with high-conflict people, really severe high-conflict people, they're just not going to change and don't try to make them change. That's so important. And don't tell them you think they're a high-conflict person. Oh, okay, so you shouldn't really make that part of your discussion. You shouldn't be uh, upfront and say, listen, you're very difficult to deal Ab with. Absolutely, yeah. I once consulted with uh, three adult daughters who realized one day that their mother probably had borderline personality disorder. So I think it was over one of the holidays they gathered together and they said, Mom, you know, you've got this problem. Well, Mom was so offended by that because she was a high-conflict person that she cut them off. She wouldn't talk to them again. And so they call me and say, what do we do? And I'll say, well, reach out to her, but never, ever tell her again that you think she has a personality disorder or a high-conflict personality. Talk about the weather. Talk about plans for the holidays. Just try to be friendly. Try to connect. Don't, don't say that again. And so that's so important. Okay, and the, the five personalities, in case people are wondering, are borderline, narcissistic, paranoid, antisocial, or histrionic. And someone actually sent me a message, Bill, and they wanted me to ask you to talk about histrionic personality disorder specifically. So could you do that for our listener? 
Yeah, and let me mention there's a full story in the uh, book about an adult woman whose mother has a histrionic personality disorder, and she's trying to deal with that. So you can get more depth there. But the idea is people with a histrionic personality are very dramatic, emotional, uh, reactive to almost everything. It's like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe this. Kind of like Scarlett O'Hara <laughs> and Gone with the Wind. It's like, oh, my goodness, this is horrible. And so they overreact to things, and that can really be exhausting to be around. So if they have a target of blame, and that's the thing, all these five types are high-conflict personalities that have a target of blame, not all histrionic people have a target of blame. So not all of them are a high-conflict personality. But the ones that are might make you a target of blame. Like in the story, they make the adult daughter the target of blame. And her mother just criticizes her for everything and, and doesn't understand why she left town. And the daughter figured out the only way she could have a life was to leave town. So histrionics, the very dramatic that sucks you in, they're kind of addicted to drama. But what to do, again, is connect with them, analyze the choices, say, you know, look, mom, you got a couple choices here. I'm going to, you know, if you can talk to me without blaming me for stuff, then I'm going to enjoy the conversation. If you're going to keep saying these blaming things, I'm going to have to walk out now. So it's up to you. And then respond to misinformation and set limits like that. All right, let's talk a little bit about uh, people who are narcissistic because, Bill, we're in um, the media and we think that our business is uh, jam-packed with narcissists, maybe in other entities it is as well. But are there certain uh, businesses and industries where narcissists uh, do better or or tend to gravitate toward? Because I would say uh, the entertainment or media industry obviously has many. Yeah, narcissistic's probably the one people are most familiar with these days. And we see it anywhere where people can really be the center of attention and try to show everybody that they're superior. That's the theme for narcissists, is I'm superior to you. You know, I'm a winner and you're a loser. Uh, and, and it's really, it's, it's so amazing sometimes how they don't realize what they're doing, but they really don't. And they're constantly putting other people down. And everyone else is thinking, this person isn't superior. They're actually pretty inferior. And you feel like saying to them, you're not so great, buddy. Look at all these things you did wrong. But you don't want to do that. The thing is, don't disrespect a narcissist. Don't diss a narcissist. The thing you want to do is find something that you can respect about them and say, hey, that was a good job you did yesterday on the such and such project. Or, you know, I, I really like how you, you know, you keep records and organize things. And then go on about your business. Don't, don't overdo it, but it actually makes your life easier if you can find something that you respect because they're always desperate for respect. If you can use the word respect with them on something, no matter how small, they love hearing that word. But you're right, entertainment, law, politics, uh, medicine, 
we see people that enjoy being superior to other people. That attracts narcissists. But not all people are narcissists in these professions. So I just want to make sure everyone knows that, Very, too. Yeah, good to know. Now, Bill, is, I guess that what you're also saying is, because of the way I started this out with you, is that there are ways that you can strike accords with people who display, um, you know, some of these these tendencies, these high-conflict persons. And I guess you, you may find them in your own family, like, you know, your children or, or maybe even your spouse, and maybe you didn't know, but now you, you kind of have, you have a better understanding of it. So I guess the, the ultimate end game does not have to be, I must walk away from this person because of this HCP, right? Right, right. So like you said, if someone's in the family, you're not going to be able to just walk away from the relationship, but you don't have to engage too emotionally. I think that's the key. So you see someone, you connect with some with a kind word, and you help them analyze their choices and say, you know, hey, mom, or hey, sister, brother, cousin, um, you know, sounds really frustrating because they're upset. Sounds frustrating. You know, there's a couple choices. I've got a couple suggestions. You want to hear them. And then, you know, just keep things light. Certainly don't engage in arguments. Don't tell them they're a high-conflict person. Don't try to give them insight. And don't focus on the past. Focus on the future. And that way you can manage for years and years a relationship with a high-conflict person. That's Bill Eddy, author of Five Types of People Who Can Ruin Your Life, Identifying and Dealing with Narcissists, Sociopaths, and Other High-Conflict Personalities. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.